You're listening to Savage Wonder, a podcast about warriors and artists. It is produced by the Veterans Repertory Theater, which is a creative hub for talented veterans and world-class performers to create compelling live theater and events. My guest today was Anthony Roberts. Anthony is a poet, and as I kind of josh with him on the episode, he is a very pedigreed poet. He is a graduate of the New School in New York City with a Master's of Fine Arts. He taught at Fairleigh Dickinson University and Seton Hall. His poetry has been published in Southerly Literary Journal, the Other Voices Poetry Anthology, and Vox Poetica, among others. Uh, His work has been translated into Persian, Italian, Bengali, Czech. His first book, Pigtown, was nominated for the Pushcart Prize. It was published in 2017 by Red Dashboard Publications. It was selected by Old Dominion University for inclusion in their writing program. And his latest book is The Clearing Barrel, which was published uh, about a year ago by Blue Jade Press. So uh, I was incredibly happy to have him on. He is a great interview for a couple of reasons. He's articulate. He is erudite. And he is incredibly thoughtful. And it's funny, you know, after a, I mean, he's coming up on the tail end of a 30 something year army career between active duty and national guard. And, you know, you can't have a career like that without having, you know, several significant emotional events. And when we kind of talked about that, I loved that he was willing to be quiet and just think about his answers before he spoke. And then when he did speak, more often than not, he would come out with these, as I kind of tell him on the episode, these kind of poetic turns of phrase uh, that I think is just a great insight into how his mind works and whether they were his own turns of phrase or whether they were cribbed from uh, his influences and other poets, uh, it didn't matter. It was always uh, a great description and a great encapsulation of whatever point he was trying to make. Made for a great interview, made for a really fun time. And I think for you guys, it will be a really fun listen. It is our second bite at the apple of getting him on the show. Uh, He and I tried to record uh, about a week ago, and the weather was so bad up around me and so cold, my Zoom kept blipping out. So uh, that was annoying. You'll hear us reference that uh, during this show. You'll hear us talk about the last time we talked. No, you're not going crazy. I didn't already record another episode with him that you guys missed. Uh, It's just we tried to do this. And I could hear one out of every three words that he said, and it just sucked all around. So after about 10 minutes, I pulled the plug on that episode, and we rescheduled for today. You guys are really going to enjoy this one. I enjoyed talking to him, and uh, I can't wait to hear how you guys feel about this episode. If you don't already know him, I can't wait to introduce you to him. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer. I'm the Artistic Director of Vet Rep, and this is The Savage Wonder of Anthony Roberts. All right, Anthony, we're live, man. Hey, awesome. Great to be here. I'm so thrilled to talk to you, man. Um, so last week, obviously, was, a, was an adventure, and I was so ate up about it because there were so many topics I wanted to talk to you about and to hear like every third word. 
I was grasping at straws. I was like, this is like being at a fountain and getting to sip like once every 10 seconds. It was annoying as hell. So this is a blast, man. Um, I want to dive in to some of your writing right away. Okay. Um, Pigtown was a really interesting read for me. And I want to dive right into that because I think what it opened my eyes to something and I am admittedly like I'm a new convert to poetry. So I'm not super literate about um, no pun intended about talking about it, but um but what I loved is that it is so unabashedly um, memoirish in a poetic form. And I know all poetry, you know, is going to be autobiographical to some degree, but the fact that you kind of own it as a, as a de facto memoir, um, I loved, and I loved how you did that. Was that a compilation of your very first real writing? Or was that something that had taken some time to work up to and really winnow your work into something that, you know, uh, had a focus and had a a very specific uh, time and place attached to it? That actually was some of my first writing post-Afghanistan. Wow. Um, That was... uh, How do I want to put it? Um... That, that initial period post-deployment, when you come back and you're angry, you don't know why, um, you, you, you've come from an environment where everything has been reduced down to the basics, like Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Dude probably wrote it when he was deployed. <laughs> right, right. Um, yeah. You know, you, you go from paying the mortgage to, oh, shit, it's Tuesday. It's Mongolian night, you know? Um, right, right. <laughs> yeah. So um, so that was really trying to make sense of everything that had happened up to that point. How did I get here? Uh, to quote David Byrne, another guy from Baltimore. Um, but uh, and then at the same time. When I came home, a lot of stuff that I had compartmentalized from childhood, from the past, those walls weren't there anymore. There was no capability to compartmentalize anymore. There was just too much overload, too much to process. So Pigtown, sectional poem, was just looking at parts of adolescence, parts of childhood through in fragments, in sections, because that was the only way I could process it. And uh, it, it's not something that lends itself to a novel. Um, maybe somebody else could write that novel. I can't. It just doesn't. That's not the way my brain works. And it deserved. It deserved poetry. There, mm-hmm. there was a there was a brutal beauty to Baltimore, to at least that neighborhood in Baltimore that deserved poetry not just David Simon writing a script about it or the way he got start writing about the ball in the Baltimore sun, not just the black and white, but the grays that take place in an inner city area. So yeah, that early writing. Yeah. So how much of that was um, the way it reads is almost like it all came from one walk you took going back to visit your old haunts. 
that's the way it reads. Is that actually what happened? Um, yes and no. Okay. Um, post deployment, there were a few places I needed to go. Uh, uh, one, I needed an ocean. So did that trip within probably a week or two of returning from, from Afghanistan. Um, then trip to Gettysburg, which is kind of where I go to recharge my soul. That's my place. Um, there's a connection to that, that there are poems about that now that haven't been published yet. Maybe they will be. Um, and then there is Baltimore. And so, yeah, I went back, um, um, actually it was just fortuitous. My dad had to have some medical stuff done. So mm-hmm. he asked if I could drive him there. So I went down to Baltimore for that. And yeah, it was just driving around and looking around and reconnecting with a lot of those memories and then coming home, processing that over a week or so. And then the entire long poem, the sectional poem was probably written in about it, it's first draft anyway, was written in about a 48 hour period Yeah, um, of write a section, sit down, take a breath, process it, and then start again on the next section. It just, it, there was flow. So there was no sense that, or was there a sense that you needed to unpack for lack of a better word, your childhood, your adolescence. Now that yeah. you're coming back from Afghanistan, was that really or and had that been planned out, or would that just hit you when you got back there? You're like, holy shit! I think there's some stuff I need to unpack. Or was it like, hey, I'm glad I'm here because I really do want to dive into this. I really do want to break this down and deconstruct this. Uh, multiple choice. I have to go with answer B. Uh, okay. Yeah, it was definitely okay. holy shit. This has all hit me at once. I knew I was going to have to write about Afghanistan, but I wasn't ready yet. And yeah. before I could get there, I had to get through the stuff that led to there. Um, so I had to get through Baltimore and that's what happened. When you were there and obviously you were there for your dad and all that, but did you make a point of then going to all your old haunts and, and did you set aside that time or were you kind of just remembering that after the fact? Subconsciously, my car kind of just went that way. Uh, it wasn't a conscious decision on my part. It was just. You know, I, you know, I'm on 95, then I'm on 295. Next thing I know, I'm in Pigtown, just the way it worked. Does your, I mean, do you know this about yourself? If your mind works in narrative form, do you see yourself frequently as, as a, um, I don't know the, for lack of a better word, the protagonist in your own story in a way that it would lend itself to a narrative? Or was it something where it's like, Hey, I write poetry, this poetry and um, prose fusion because this is just how my brain works and this is how i process things that's the way my brain works um which is funny you can always tell in this environment if i've written an op board or a memorandum for record um you know i was gonna ask about that yeah there's there's definitely uh there's a flow to it um i I remember an ex uh when i was a, a a training officer um, my XO comes up to me and he's like, did you really have to fucking write the situation of the op board? And I am <laughs> fucking pentameter. Um, and you know, sometimes I'll do it just because I can, <laughs> but, uh, in this case with Pigtown, actually, I was less the focus. Um, while 
the narrative poem is seen through my eyes. There's no denying that. Um, what was on my mind, what was in my mind when I was writing was all the people from my neighborhood that I knew. Mm. Um, after the book came out, I was really the biggest surprise and the, 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 the most important feedback I received was that people from the neighborhood bought the book. Wow. And for, you know, and for a lot of people there, that was, uh, it may be the only book they bought that year. And then for people I grew up with and people who ran the same streets I did, who, you know, n- you know, nobody is going to remember them as stellar citizens, but people who just, you know, do their job every day and raise their families, et cetera. Um, you know, they're not going to go down to anybody's history books. They're not going to, no statues are going to be erected. Not that it matters the way we tear down statues, but um, anyway, the, their feedback that I got it right, that yeah. they could relate to the book, that some of the things I wrote about resonated with them, memories they had as well. That told me I got it right. And that's what mattered. That's what still matters. So one of your poems, you talk about uh, how Pigtown changes and suddenly it starts following you on Facebook. And that moment of like, holy shit, you know, jump the shark and, and there's this whole new, you know, uh, vibe now coming from Pigtown. And obviously, I mean, I've driven through Baltimore. That's about the I stayed in a hotel there one night. Um, and, uh, and I know that I remember that. old. Uh, sorry, I just can't help but say I remember that old joke about Baltimore. Your first prize is one week in Baltimore. Second prize is two weeks in Baltimore. Yeah, <laughs> that, 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 that kind of thing. So, like, as a New Yorker, like that was kind of my impression of Baltimore. So, I didn't know what the hell Pigtown was, and when I looked it up online, the description, at least, I mean, as far as Professor Wikipedia goes, was you know, kind of hipster, you know, transitional neighborhood thing. So I was like, clearly, I don't think that's what he's diving into. And this is before no. I read the book. And then when I and then when I read the book, I was like, oh yeah, okay. This thing obviously went through a big transition. So when you write this, how does it get to those people? Are those people displaced? Are they still in Pigtown? Or is there still those parts? There are still those parts. Um, okay. You know, there yeah, there's definitely a you know some attempt at gentrification, but even then, you know, even now, you can you know pull up the uh, crime blotter, the Baltimore Sun page. You're still seeing shootings. You're, okay. still, you're still seeing stabbings. Um, you know, it's it's still very much in transition. The main the main street of Pigtown, Washington Boulevard. Um, there's some very, very upscale places. Um, they now have a bookstore there, Charm City Books, which needs to carry my book. Um, just saying, having a book named after the neighborhood you're located in. You people need to get get on the ball. Um, wow. <laughs> but, no, it's funny because I was actually going to ask you where it got sold and if it was being sold at kind of upscale bookstores that may not have been there when you were living there. But I guess that's not the case. Not yet. No. Um, wow. You know, part of the part of the fact is now living in New Jersey, you know, having the you know, still being in my army career, um, you the ability to get down to Baltimore to really. I guess market it there just hasn't been feasible, not in the age of COVID and um, yeah, the, the op tempo is just insane. So um, really the way it's made its way around Baltimore is word of mouth. Um, 
I went with a very small publisher for the first book, Red Dashboard, um, out of uh, near Princeton, New Jersey. They, they're now defunct, unfortunately. Um, so a lot of the marketing was really on my own. Um, yeah. It's obviously available on Amazon, but, um, and, you know, I've seen it up in Jersey at some places, but getting it to Baltimore, that was really word of mouth. It started with people who were friends with me on Facebook, ordering the book, and then talking to their friends about it. And then the next thing I know, I'm getting Facebook messages, people I haven't heard from in 20, 30 years. Hey, I bought your book. Hey, I bought yeah, your book. Yeah. And that's, that's really, you know, how it's gained visibility and momentum. That, that's a huge lift on any author, I think, to do your own marketing to that extent mm-hmm. and to kind of shoulder that burden. Um, I want to dive a little bit more um, before I forget <laughs> into, into the writing itself. Um, how did you feel when you had compiled what became those poems? Did you feel, was there an immense um, kind of therapeutic weight that had been lifted? Did you feel like you had learned something more about yourself? What was the takeaway? What was the, what was the catharsis afterwards? The catharsis that followed was a feeling of, okay, I finally got this down. Now it's time to start writing about the next, you know, the next phase. It, you were done with it. You'd exhausted, you'd exhausted the yeah. subject matter and you were, it kind of purged yeah. the valve a little bit. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. Um, what's your favorite piece of that, uh, of Pigtown? What's the, is there one that you come back to, or is it kind of like an X now and it's all kind of fading into memory? Yes, there are two. One is the factory, which opens the book. Um, and the reason for that is, like I, as a teenager, I wrote voraciously. I filled spiral that da- spiral bound notebooks full of shit poetry. Um, <laughs> sure. Because Ezra Pound was right. When you're young, you have nothing to write about. You may think you do, but you don't. Um, <laughs> and, right. and, but it was essential to my evolution as a writer to do that then. Of course. Yeah. And within that poem, is the only line of writing that I wrote as a teenager that has survived. Really? Okay. Yes. And that is the phrase, thighs have degenerated into a fleshy mass of forlorn and forgotten ecstasies. That is the only phrase that survives from all of that adolescent crap. Um, And it um, it was just something that struck me as I saw the women outside of that factory for a smoke break, um, mm. you know, when I was, when I was a teenager. Um, so that poem just simply because it, it ties childhood, literally ties, you know, adolescence to the person I am now to, to the, to the uh, alleged adult that I've become. Um, and then and the second would be in memoriam. And the reason for that, the poem itself, those are not their real names. Oh, um, really? Like, I changed the names of the people. Um, their manner of death is absolutely true. Right. I changed the names, but somebody reading the book from the neighborhood will read it and know exactly who I mean. They'll know. And that's, so that was really, that meant a lot to me because it, it is a very private poem only for people who were there. That's interesting because you only mentioned their first names, if I remember yep. right. Right. Yep. And um, did you think that the first names would be because if people from the neighborhood are going to know who they are anyway, and those are the only ones who would know, 
what did you, what was your calculation? What was the risk assessment of like actually having their real names out there? It just felt voyeuristic or uh, like, like a vulture or like a worm, you know, like being in the coffin interviewing the worms. Um, it just didn't feel right to use their real names. Do you speak in poetry? Do you, do you, do you just, are you just <laughs> naturally gifted with turns of phrase? I don't know. You'd have, well, that turn of phrase actually, I believe was Jim Morrison, but you'd have to ask my kids. Um, usually, <laughs> but, well, um, let's talk about this for a second. Cause it is funny. So for those, obviously you guys aren't, aren't, aren't seeing Anthony or me for that matter. Um, he's in uniform. I most certainly am not. Um, but, uh, Oh yeah, thanks. Yeah. appreciate it. I, I, I decided as, as middle age takes me over that I was going to go back and buy all the shirts I couldn't afford when I was young and, and, and all my bands don't nice. have merch anymore. So trying to find those, those shirts is just brutal. And the ones I really wanted, I can't find, but whatever I got, I got, I got my little ode to primus today and, uh, you know, um, be that as it may. So what I look at, what I think of when I see you in uniform is how difficult it must be for you to do things in the military without waxing poetic. I, I know when I was in, if I dared to do any writing in my own time, um, it would, it, it, it would just bleed into my military writing. And I would immediately, somebody would come up and say, why didn't you just say this? And I'm like, oh yeah, that's how you say that. And I would literally, I, the amount of, of neurotic, um, angst ridden time I spent editing myself to make sure that I'm saying things clearly and not with some poetic flourish was, was an immense amount of time. Do you do that? Do you self edit in the military or do you go, Hey, fuck it. I'm letting it fly. This is how, how it's going to land. Just the way I thought it. It depends on what I'm writing. Okay. Um, obviously if you, you got to know your audience, um, if I'm writing for, I'm writing an order, I'm writing a, uh, you know, an SOP, it, it's, it's pretty cut and dry. Just like, you know, um, when I taught uh, writing at Fairleigh Dickinson and you're editing a student's paper, you're just, you know, you're looking for the nuts and bolts uh, of writing. Um, if, and now the, the focus in professional military education, you have to write things like argumentative essays and persuasive essays um, because what we've come to discover especially among, you know, with junior officers and, you know, mid-grade NCOs, a lot of them don't know how to write. Sure. And, you know, if you're writing an argumentative essay, if you're trying to make your point, you know, you have, excuse me, you have to learn how to do it effectively without using the word motherfucker or asshole, um, which is, you know, common, <laughs> especially. And, and very persuasive too. It, so, it yeah, is, yeah, it, yeah, yeah, yeah. When, when I was in E7, it was uh, one of yeah, you know, it was one of my favorite ways to get what I wanted. Um, but at the same time, so I, I would say that in terms of how the military has evolved towards understanding the need for effective writing in my own style, the two have actually were dovetailed rather well. Um, and writing has had a positive impact on my career. Uh, Pigtown did get selected at Old Dominion University. Uh, for inclusion in their writing program. And that fact and my going down to ODU to talk the book, um, et cetera, did come to the attention of people above me because, you know, obviously I got to put in for leave. I got to let them know what I'm doing. And that resulted in me getting selected to go to Seton Hall, 
where I was an assistant professor of military science in the ROTC program there. Got you. And then, you know, working with cadre there, one of whom was a hardcore, believe it or not, a hardcore deadhead. But since he was 10 years younger than me, he was pretty pissed off because I saw Jerry. He didn't. Um, but uh, and then, you know, having the opportunity then to work with cadets as they're coming in and talk to them about writing and the importance of it and the fact, the reality that no matter where you're from or what you look like, you are judged by how you speak and how you write. Um, and so, I, I, again, it, it's being a poet and having, as you put it, those turns of phrase and knowing where and when to apply them has benefited me considerably within my own career. That's incredible because I was also going to ask how that what what the um, the backblast was from doing military writing and if that if you saw that negatively affect your poetry. But from what I'm hearing, it sounds like the the two have been very complimentary. They have, they have, and you know it's you it's only it only becomes an obstacle if you allow it to. Um, you know, I, I was joking around, uh, the other day, just messing around with, uh, with one of our doctrinal manuals and thinking, you know, how do I turn this into a found poem? Yeah. It, it sounds weird, but you can actually do quite a lot with a chapter on the military decision-making process. Um, <laughs> just no, take but- a black Sharpie and go. Well, and I wanted to, I wanted to compliment you on your creativity in form um, especially, I mean, both in Pigtown, but also Clearing Barrel, where you take all those prayers and redact them to make them have different, more nuanced, more personal meaning to you. Um, but you're, um, I, I guess the thing that struck me the whole time is I was like, who the fuck does Anthony think he is? Like, the, you know, I, I was like, I'm sitting here, like, if I, when I try to write poetry, you know, you're trying to rip veins out of your arm. You're like, okay let's try to get it into some, some general configuration. That's going to, um, the form and function are going to meet and you're throwing pros in there, like in Pigtown, and then in clearing barrel where you're taking, um, wh- whether it's, uh, your, I forget what you called it, your immemorium section, but it's, you don't call it mm-hmm. that other, other stories, I think, or other mm-hmm. travels. And you, and you, uh, you know, talk about other people in certain ways, you take the prayers and mess around with them. Um, it seems like you are so comfortable in that form that you can flex and adapt it and ad- and, and have a poetic take on a, a bunch of different writing styles. Am I overthinking that or is that? No, that was something? the intent. With the, that was particularly yeah. the intent with the clearing barrel. Um, I wanted a full length volume. Um, I wanted to do a full book, but at the same time, maybe it's my own ADD, ADHD. If I have a book, that is nothing but the same form, I'm going to put it down. If mm. yeah, you give me a full length book of haiku. Yeah. Thanks. Um, appreciate it. I'll probably finish it sometime in 2024. Um, and so, I mean, if nothing else, it just reflects my own, the way my brain works. Yeah. I'm fascinated by history. I love teaching history. Um, at the same time, you know, there are certain historical figures that really lend themselves to, to poetry. Um, through their own lives. Um, you know, the, the military poems, they're self-explanatory. You know, it, it's it's a snapshot of one person's experience of, of war, of service. Um, and then the beginning, you know, a lot of those poems are autobiographical. Um, family members, 
right. uh, past relationships, um, et cetera. So you have a, I, I just wanted to take a different approach. And yeah, with the prayers, if anything else, that just reflects my own, I won't say a crisis of faith, but a struggle with faith, you know, as faith matures, as you mature, as events in life happens, it changes your perspective on things. And where do we start growing up Catholic as a kid, you start with prayers. That's what you're taught. Um, and so the prayers become that touchstone that from which everything else kind of emanates. So the, the found poems that, you know, the erasure poetry that I did with those prayers was really just trying to convey that conflict. The fact that you have names for what those poems are, erasure poems, found poems and all that, I, I, I know it, it, it's probably second nature to you at this point, but to somebody like me that's, that's new to this game, um, that's impressive that it's like, oh, shit, there's a whole there's a whole thing behind this. This didn't just happen by accident. Mm -hmm. um, and I think uh, last time we talked intermittently, <laughs> um, you know, we talked about your, for lack of a better word, let's call it pedigree as a poet. Um, to and, and I'm not, you can disavow that as much as you want or downplay that as much as you want. But but I mean, you know, you there's there's an awful you can tell just in reading your work and then the way you discuss your work. Um, you seem to be very much not just a student of the form, but somebody that has studied the forms and the form and multiple forms enough that you are now comfortable both teaching them and executing them. Is that fair to say? Um, depending on the form, yeah. Um, there's still some that I struggle with. Uh, about a month and a half ago. Um, I finally decided that I was going to write in a form that uh, has always frightened me. Um, that's the Sestina. Um, what is that? The Sestina? A Sestina is where you take six words and those words then become the last word of a line and the order of the word through six stanzas um, with a couplet or a, a triad at the end. Um, but the rotation mm. of those words, there's a pattern to it. So each stanza has the, again, one of those six words ends the line, but it's in a different order. Um, and I don't know why that always intimidated me, um, but it did. So I finally wrote one. Um, probably sucks. I used a word generator on the Internet just to give me six <laughs> random words. Um, but so I, I would say some things that could I could I speak on and teach? Yeah, absolutely. Um, with authority, not always. Um, you know, there, there are people who can write sonnets that, you know, I, I wouldn't touch it, but also the sonnet doesn't always interest me, doesn't really interest me. Um, so it just depends, I guess, on the particular form and my experience with it. Some forms translate better to my own experience than others. So how much of your poetry um, now, having gotten through two books, two very well-received books that kind of exhausted a lot of personal material for you. How much of your work now um, starts with trying to, you know, explore different forms and how much of it is subject matter? How much of it is, oh yeah, I've got a lot more stories I want to get into at this point. Um, I, I can't really quantify that. It, it really is dependent upon the poem. 
Um, like I know you've seen the Instagram page. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of that, a lot of what I've been doing lately is uh, ekphrastic poetry, which is poetry inspired by an image. Um, that started with a trip to Savannah with my daughter to go look at a college where, um, you know, Savannah is just an amazing town. Um, you you could spend days there and still not see everything you want to see. Um, and so then the two things combined, the image inspired the poem, but then the poem would, you know, the subject matter would sometimes drift to the personal, um, you know, there's the two poems you've, that, you know, two recent poems where there's the image of the Doc Martens, my own, you know, right, on the floor. Right. And then the one of my daughter trying on her first pair. And it was just seeing her do that. It's like, grab the phone, shoot the picture. Um, so then, you know, the, the form becomes ekphrastic because it's inspired by an image, but then the subject matter follows. What am I writing about? So yeah. It, it just depends. Got you. All the pictures in Pigtown, are those yours? Are no, those they your are personal not. Pictures? Okay. No, they are not. Those were taken by a photographer named Adam Kevra. And what is particularly unique about those photos is he took those back when he was in school, uh, late 80s, early 90s. So those photos are all from chronologically, they, they emanate from the same time period in which Pigtown is rooted. So there's an authenticity wow. to those poems in ter- or I'm sorry, those photos in terms of what people are wearing, yeah. um, the backgrounds, the pictures. Those are all things that in 1990, 1989, you would have seen because they were seen, yeah. they were real. Um, like if I were to go back to Pigtown today and shoot photos of the streets or the alleys, they would look different. Sure. Um, Washington Boulevard would look very different. So those photos from then really, I, I when the uh, the editor at the time, the editor who actually became my publisher for the second book, Rebecca Bonham, um, when she linked me up with Adam and we looked through all these photos to decide what we wanted to, what photos we wanted to pair with the poems, um, were just uh, it, it was like a it was like a a gold mine. It's like, wow, this is perfect. So you didn't know him. He wasn't a friend or anything like that. This was no. somebody that you guys went out and you found. Uh, well, he actually was a friend of the editor. Oh, okay. Um, who, who, the woman who edited the book. And she's like, you know, you should connect with him and take a look. And it just worked. Wow. It just absolutely worked. Um, we're talking about a second edition for Pigtown now where I'm hoping to work with him again and actually do even more in that regard with photos. Really? Are you going to add more poems as well? That I don't know. Um, maybe there are still some poems that have been written that aren't published about the neighborhood. They may be included. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that would require some thoughts, some discussion to see if it fits with what Pigtown originally was. And so that it evolves rather than you have, rather than having this disjointed second edition where, oh, let's throw it at the wall and see what sticks. That's fair. Um, so, yeah, that, that's really the main thing. And having more creative input and control over the second edition will, will matter to me as well. Um, did you feel like, of, did you feel like you didn't have all the control you wanted in the first one? No, I, I, no, I didn't. Um, and that, that's okay. It's a first book. 
Um, and there's a natural give and take between the editor and publisher and the creator and the poet. Um, you know, have be, after having done a couple of books, having a better idea of my own voice and what I want to say, what I want to show and what I want, how I want to see my own work presented. Um, I'm able to come to the table a little more well-prepared um, in that regard. I mean, I, I have to ask, uh, you know, answer to your degree of comfort, but it, what do you feel is, was lacking in that or what would you have changed? Um, what, what, what things, you know, what, where, where are the friction points when you look back at um, that now? I would say the uh, first and foremost, the author photo. God, it's horrible. Um, <laughs> it, it wasn't my choice. The, pu- the publisher was absolutely intransigent, would not budge because apparently her photographer had taken the photo. I hated it. Still do. Um, I, I didn't think I, it was I, bad. I, I didn't think it was bad. I thought I, I thought you looked good in punk. I thought it was all right. I, I was like, oh, yeah. I, so I hate that. Punk. I, I don't know. I, I just don't like the picture. I'd probably put it as I'd make it a urinal target. But um, anyway, so I changed the author photo and just some things with format, um, some poems that weren't included uh, that I would that I would have liked to have seen mm-hmm. included. Um, and again, the opportunity to expand on the photography. One thing where the publisher and editor were absolutely you know, phenomenal is how the entire book is formatted. Yeah. You know, that landscape wraparound cover is, is awesome. Yeah. Um, and it stands out, which obviously, you know, as a, as an author, you want, you want people to see your book and go, Oh, wow. Um, so, you know, just expanding on it, maybe the visual aspect of it as well. Do you feel like your voice has changed? Cause you mentioned that that you really, in what way? Um, I'm a lot more comfortable with my own feelings on things. Like if you look at Pigtown, it's observational. Mm. It's definitely mm-hmm. more, you know, looking at what's going on around. Um, you get into the clearing barrel, you start to see my own comfort with exploring my own feelings and emotions on things. I would also attribute that to um, sobriety. And coming to grips with stuff, you know, things along those lines. Um, I, I just hit five years yesterday. So um, thank you. And I would say that has played a role in my own, the evolution of my voice, the willingness to confront my feelings on things. Um, and that continues um, being more personal, you know, the poetry about my daughter Poetry about, we talked about this last week and when, when you heard every third word, but talking about the girl, you know, for whom punk wasn't, you know, right. was a, was, a uh, was, was her wardrobe. Um, so yeah, my voice has definitely evolved. I'm more at peace maybe with myself and definitely with aspects of my past that I used to be at war with. So when I talked to Dave uh, Meadows, um, who's an actor and a former SEAL, he talked about his biggest struggle now as an actor was getting on stage and not being a SEAL and shucking that identity. Do you feel any of that yourself where, where when you write, you 
really have to make a conscious effort to shut the uniform in a closet and go, that's not me. And that allows you to open up more. Or has that not been a struggle for you? Writing, not a struggle. Okay. Reading, it is. Reading, uh, we did a reading at KGB bar uh, back Got in you. December. Yes. And great event. Awesome experience. But there was also that need to consciously remind myself that this isn't Major Roberts giving a briefing. Um, this isn't Sergeant Roberts telling a war story. This is Anthony reading poems. What was a crucial touchstone then was actually having my daughter with me there. Um, mm. That was the same day she bought her docs. Uh, huh. we, we kind of made a trip, did some visits in the city. She's looking at a couple of schools there. Um, and then having friends there who, you know, there were an, uh, another friend who, another poet who's in recovery as well, um, who, who's been crucial to my own evolution um, at, in terms of coming to grips with emotion and being a better writer that way. Friends from my MFA program. Um, that was essential to not being or feeling like I was on that stage in a uniform. How successful yeah. do you think you were in, in terms of getting that and, and, get, and get, shut it out? Okay. Wow. Very. Um, apparently, uh, there's a poem in the clearing bar barrel about my mother's passing, mm -hmm. reading that. And when you're standing on a stage, you have lights in your face. You can't really see the audience, um, which was a bit disconcerting because I prefer having that engagement, being yeah, able to make sure. contact, et cetera. And then hearing later that there were people who were crying in the audience in the poem, that tells me I got it right. Um, Major Roberts reading a poem about his mom is not going to inspire tears. Um, Anthony reading the poem connected. And that was like, okay, you did it. You did it well. Let's talk about how the clearing barrel evolved. Was it, and I'm, I'm just basing this off how you phrased it in the, in the introduction. But you said, uh, you know, when you were giving your, your thanks to everybody that helped out, you said to my editor and publisher, Rebecca Bonham, who took a mass of poems from me twice and made two books a reality. Thank you. Do you just, for the Clearing Barrel especially, did, was it a bag of ideas? Was it like, hey, here's a bunch of stuff, and I don't know what form this needs to take, but here you go, and do with it as you see fit? Um, more along the lines of... Here is a mass of poems. This is what you know has been written in the past three years since Pigtown was published. This is what I envision. What do you think? Okay. And so there was a exchange of ideas and discussion over format and how do we approach this? And okay, some of these poems and another person mentioned in there is uh, Amory Lockhart who is the uh, editor of Box Poetica. Okay. Excuse me. Um, and you know, her feedback as well was pretty crucial in terms of some of these things are standalone books of their own. They can't be included. Mm. And so th there was definitely a very collaborative effort in terms of taking this mass of poetry and honing it to what you have, you know, to what's become the clearing barrel. So, being that you have maybe the genesis of at least one, if not more other books based on what was discarded and 
thought to be too much for the clearing barrel itself. What did you see the clearing barrel as? Was it kind of, hey, I've pruned the tree with Pigtown and now I can, now I'm getting a better view of the next layer of stuff that I want to kind of deal with and get off my plate? Was that kind of the idea? And it's this smorgasbord of different topics. Exactly. And that that's exactly what you would do with a clearing barrel, sure. making sure the, the weapon is empty. Um, and that was the intent here to get these things out, to put them on paper, to put them into a book, to put a period at the end of the sentence or an exclamation point in some cases so that the next book, whatever it is, reflects even further evolution. And it almost frees you to have a diverse bunch of subjects, right? Because it's like, yes. hey, these are all my alibis. So here we go. You know, it's yep. going to be this, it's going to be that, it's going to be a little bit of that too. Okay. Yeah. Um, it's like you, you get off the truck and go to the clearing barrel. And what am I clearing? An M4, an M9, a shotgun. <laughs> and by the way, I love the poem where you actually took the clearing barrel instructions. And uh, would that be considered found poetry? What you did with that? Because you um, certainly explore other things in between each instruction. So what yes. would that be termed? Just a hybrid. Uh, just, okay. you know, it, it, it's, it's, it's its own thing. Um, it, it would be, how do I want to put this? Um, just very reflective, maybe confessional. You know, the feelings that accompany each step. Looking back on it. You know, what, what, what am I really doing standing in front of this metaphorical clearing barrel and how do I feel? Um, and, and that's what I wanted to convey was that experience of coming home, but still having those memories. You know, you, how many times do you sit in a car now and when you're driving with somebody, you still say clear, right? Right. Yeah. You know? right. Um, those things that, that change you without you're even being aware of it. And so that that's really what that poem is. That one of all the poems in that book, that one's probably the most cathartic. In the clearing barrel, you talk about sitting on the bed with a gun in your hand. Um, was that autobiographical? Yeah. Yeah, it was. What saved you in those moments? I don't know. Something. There, there was no like Marley appearing to Scrooge thing. Something, I guess, loved me more than I loved myself. Whatever you want to call it. God, Odin, the higher power, Allah, something just a feeling that that wasn't the right path to follow. Was there any sense while you were sitting there of that out of body kind of sense of being able to capture how you would express this and express what you were going through? Was no. Um, okay. At that time I was still very much drinking heavily. Okay. <laughs> gotcha. Gotcha. It's, um, I, I love the clearing barrel and I loved it because of its diversity, because of how the subject matters 
changed constantly. And certainly when it got to that, I found, um, I found that interesting for a lot of reasons, not the least of which is because of your frankness and um, humility and honesty about the war experience. Um, and it was surprising when I was reading it to suddenly see um, what had looked like a natural evolution into the warrior suddenly take a sharp right turn into sitting on the bed with a gun. Um, have you ever deconstructed why that was or why it got to that point? Not really. It just, everything evolves. And, you know, in my own case, it was anger, guilt, shame, remorse, regret, all of those negative emotions over a long period of time, not just a deployment, but a lifetime um, that just, I guess, culminated with that. So, you know, deconstructing it, yeah, probably sometime talking to, you know, talking in the rooms uh, about it, talking with people about it. But I, I wouldn't say I've ever consciously, you know, looked at that moment and tried to peel back the onion to get to the core of it. No. Have your kids ever talked about it with you? Have you ever discussed it with them? Um, that particular situation, they weren't aware of it. Okay. Um, have they read about it though? Now have they read the clearing barrel and gone? Uh, I, I believe my, my oldest has, um, my, you know, my two, my two boys are still very young. Okay. Um, they're still reading diary of a wimpy kid and I'm cool with that. Um, and then my 14 year old is really big on young adult fiction and poetry isn't her thing. She was actually apologetic when she told me that. Um, and you know, my res response to that is it's okay. You know, poetry right. isn't for everyone. Right. Um, you know, some people don't care for, for Stephen King. I'm one of them, um, but other people adore it. So, you know, my oldest, um, you know, she's a senior, she's looking at colleges, she's moving into adulthood. Um, and of all the kids, she probably has, you know, she has the most memories of life post-deployment. Um, my youngest was a newborn. He arrived uh, nine months and three days after I got back. So, um, as happens. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah. uh, and my other son, he was, he was just over, uh, you know, he was just over a year old when I got back, he was an infant. When I left, he was, I, he was a newborn. He was seven weeks old. Um, and I came back and he was walking. So yeah, they really don't have as much of a memory of that. My oldest does. So I've talked with her a lot about it. Um, and you know, I, I guess she's kind of my sidekick for a lot of those things too. My trips to the city, to museums, uh, things of that nature. So you know, she's at a point where she's kind of discovering herself. And so a lot of those discussions have taken place about feelings, processing emotions, healthy ways to process emotions like right. writing, unhealthy ways, scotch. <laughs> so, um, so that sort of thing. Well, it's, it's funny. I mean, you're, you're standing out as a, uh, sharp rebuke to the the stereotype of the the writer who drinks to you know accentuate their words and and uh, go into that creative fog and uh and i i think it's good uh, wasn't it 
Dudley Moore and Arthur that that has that line where he says, uh, "Not all poets, um, not all, not all, uh, not all people who drink are poets. Some of us drink because we're not poets." And uh, <laughs> and I think you know it's a it, it's good to kind of see the flip side of it because there is a lot of glorification of alcohol in the creative process and in soldiering. So <clears throat> it, it's probably good that that people see the flip side of that. Well, I mean, um, you—I don't know when did when were you when did you enlist? Two thousand seven. Okay, um, you know the the army of the joke of the army of the early nineties was you didn't get promoted to E five without at least two DUIs. Um, you know it, it was, and that was the culture. I mean, yeah. that's you know Fort Bragg. That's where you learn to drink, man. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> doesn't yeah. matter how much you know. You close the bar at two as long as you're there for your run at zero five. You're good. Yeah. Um, you know, you miss the run, there's hell to pay. But um, I, I would say my own background, and this is like, you know, ethnicity plays a key, plays a role here. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm a mix of things, but the cultures of which I'm most aware and was most immersed in as a child were, you know, the Greek and the Irish, and then the German and the Welsh. And, you know, when it comes to the Welsh, you everybody remembers Dylan Thomas. And yeah, you know, the uh, the way he checked out, and then the Irish. There's Brendan Bayhan, and you know, you know how many others you know, who have uh, gone a little too early, yeah. because there was the belief that alcohol was required for the creative process. When eventually, it destroys your ability to write. Um, and that's where I was. Nothing I've written drunk has been published because it's huh. shit. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> It's funny. It's it's yeah. I know I haven't squared that circle yet, but I definitely in the individual journey I can see how. Um, I this is a funny parallel, but I know I, I read an article where uh, Lady Gaga said she wasn't having sex um, until like an out her album was done, and she was just purely purely abstaining. She doesn't drink anyway, and all that. Now it's funny what people do to tap into the creative and the way that that has to, um, yeah, the way you kind of reconcile that with your life. And it's weird because in your case, you've chosen two professions that are both require extraordinary things from a person to excel in. The soldiering is a weird life and an, an artist's life as a, and a, certainly a poetic life is a very, it's a difficult choice and it's a different choice. And that's what makes it perhaps difficult is because you have to have that different perspective and a different way of viewing the world. Um, and I guess I, I, I'm, I'm kind of forging this into a question, but I'm trying to think how nerdy to get on this. Uh, and I think I'm going to nerd out, man. Geek out. Yeah, I, th <laughs> I think so. Because I, 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 I think you're the right guy to do this with. So how important is it for a poet, and maybe even just a beginning poet, to acquaint themselves with form and get to know form and to study people and to really learn things besides just their own emotions. I'm sorry. Can you repeat that? How important is it for a poet to study and learn and research form in poetry, as opposed to just merely tapping into their emotions and letting that spit out on the page? Depends on the poet. Um, some people have a natural rhythm in voice that if they were to try to subject it to a form 
would render the poem unreadable mm. or unrelatable. Um, others need form. Um, Shakespeare could not have written free verse. He needed the sonnet um, to, you know, to, to build, you know, to express himself. Um, so it really depends. Uh, some people have a natural rhythm to them that uh, just works for them. And the poem finds its own rhythm. It finds its own form. It may not be one that you find in the Princeton Encyclopedia of Poetry and Poetics, but it's one that you know, it, the reader is going to resonate with the reader. Um, and others, very structured, very formal, very precise. Um, and even within the poetry community, there's conflict in that regard. You have the, you know, the poets who, if you aren't writing in a recognized form, then it's not poetry. Um, and then you have the others who eschew any form and will put a single word on a page and call it a poem. And so again, it depends. It depends on the individual. So you're you're anticipating my next question, which is, what is poetry to you? To me. To you. Poetry to me is the ability to express feeling or experience, observation in a way that resonates with someone external or with someone on the outside that they still carry it with them in a condensed form. So kind of like that riff that you can't get out of your head. Exactly. Or that head shot. <laughs> yeah. Leaves that pink halo. Right. Um, right. So yeah, that to me, that's what that's poetry to me. To someone else, maybe something completely different, and that's okay. When you've taught, is that what you encourage the kids you work with to do to find their way through the form? No, um, with when I've taught and I've done workshops, it hasn't just been like younger students, there's also been adults. The key thing that I stress is put it on the page because you can throw the words on the page and you can edit them in any form you want if you choose to do so. But the first thing is just get it out, get it down on paper, start there. Um, you know, you can polish it, refine it, whatever you want to do later. But the poem starts with the putting those words on a page, whether it's in a long run on sentence, a la Kerouac writing on the road, or whether it's, um, you know, I have in mind a sonnet, I can already hear it in my head. I already have a haiku, I can hear it in my head. Either way, get it down. Because then you can then take it and shape it to be what you want or leave it as is um, and drive people crazy, uh, especially those who are grammatically obsessed. Um, but it starts with just putting the words down. Everything else follows. How much editing do you do of your own poetry? Do you, are you a one and done guy? It seems to me like you'd probably be a multiple drafts person. Am I wrong? Depends, depends on the poem. Okay. Um, some of them go through numerous edits. Uh, others 
are one and done. They just kind of come out and there they are. Mm. Uh, it just now the, the rhythm and everything naturally follows. Um, the form naturally follows. It's already in my head. Others. Yeah. Like pig town. I knew it was going to be sectional, but then going back into the sections, how am I going to break the stanzas, et cetera? That was a process. Um, so it depends. At this point, um, what do you see with, uh, with your work? Where is the adventure for you in your work at this point? Is it, um, is it the stories that have yet to be told or is it like those discarded poems that looked like they were too much, too rich for the clearing barrel alone that it's like, Oh, I, I need to go mine that. Or is it that you're constantly, I guess what I'm asking is how ambitious are you to go find new experiences or are you like, no, I want to find the poetry and just my day to day and what's around me now. Um, situation dictates right now. It's the poetry of the day to day. Um, I'm a creature of duty. I am tied to place and circumstance. Um, what the future holds when I hang up the uniform and finally grow my hair and grow a beard, um, you know, or a Raleigh fingers mustache. Um, I'm working on it. Yeah. Uh, awesome. Yeah. yeah. Now, meanwhile, anybody who's listening to this under 30 has no idea what I'm talking about, but uh, <laughs> Google Raleigh fingers. It's epic. Oh, um, beautiful. But, Get his baseball card, that 82 exactly. tops baseball card of Raleigh yes. fingers. Oh, it's beautiful. Um, but, you know, what the future holds, yeah, it's going to have its own experiences and that'll dictate its own poems. So right now, the everyday. Tomorrow, who knows? Let's talk about your warrior self. Um, and I want to start with just what we've already touched on. What did Afghanistan mean to you? What did that deployment mean to you? <sighs> to be able to do what I had been training to do my entire career to go do it where it mattered, but also in some ways it was, you know, as a little kid, you know, and I touched on this in the clearing barrel with a poem about my great grandfather reading natural national geographic mm -hmm. and, you know, the image of the Afghan girl that was on the cover, you know, Afghanistan had always been a place in my mind for whatever reason, um, you know, seeing the Mujahideen fighting the Soviets throughout childhood, um, you know, and then seeing what emerged of that in the nineties with, and then, you know, the brain drain that followed the Soviet invasion in the eighties and meeting Afghan people. Um, it meant a lot to go there and finally it, it, to immerse myself in the reality of it rather than being a spectator to it. Um, the deployment itself, it was uh, doing my job. I was an embedded advisor to the ANA, um, you know, lived and worked with the Afghans every day. Um, that was Where fascinating. Were Where were you in the country? Uh, we were, we came in through uh, Kandahar and then moved up north into Kabul um, and were primarily out of Kabul with trips north, trips east. Okay. Um, so you got to see the whole country kind of. Pretty much didn't see much of the West. Okay. Um, was never out towards Harad or any anywhere out west. Um, Did you get down to Paktia and out to Nangahar and all yeah. around there? Okay. Yeah. yeah. And so, so you got to see the Hindu Kush, is what I'm getting at. You got, pretty much, you got yeah, to see the, yeah. the poetic parts of, of that of the country that everybody got, thinks about. Yeah, got to experience an Afghan winter. That was fun. Yeah. Um, 
yeah, yeah there's a reason nobody fights in the winter you can't um and uh came home with a new appreciation like i'm looking outside now and it's snowing and i came home with a new appreciation for snow plows and rock salt um but uh but so so um it was uh it, it was just it was it was an amazing experience um and i uh I, w- I wouldn't trade it for the world. Was it kind of the inciting incident that led to so many life changes? It seems like it is when I talk to you. It seems like the drinking started to become in question. The poetry started to fire up. Like it just seemed like that that was a pivot point for you. It was definitely. Um, like I said, coming back, a lot of the things that I'd compartmentalized for a long time, it was no longer possible to do that. So how did I cope with it? Well, writing and then drinking. Um, I'm still doing one. So, you know, <laughs> batting 500, I'll take it. Um, but yeah, I would say it was definitely a pivotal experience. It was definitely a life changing experience. What was it about it? If you, when you have to reflect, I mean, obviously it was a chance to go do your job and you got to have some good quality time, some good Afghan experiences. Um, what was it about it? in reflection, do you think that made it so cathartic and so important for you and fueled all those changes? Because it was, it was a complete immersion in the other. Um, and I would say particularly the, having the advisory role, which was unique for, you know, a lot of deployments where, you know, some people would be in, be at Bagram and never go outside the wire, never leave the base. And, you know, it was just like being on Fort Hood or an Air Force base, except for the indirect fire. Um, in some ways, safer than Fort Hood. But anyway. Um, <laughs> yeah, seriously. <laughs> but, I was say, uh, it's, it's a rough parallel. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, my own experience, you know, you're every day you're you're walking, you know, you know, around with the ANA you're you're going out with them when they're doing their they're doing their sec four mission uh you're eating with them you're you're practicing your dari and so being immersed in that experience and being completely removed at points from the western world that was so familiar and then also seeing those friction points and those conflicts where Afghan culture conflicts with the Western way of war, such as, you know, we want fuel and, you know, a truck with 2,500 gallons of fuel leaves. And when it arrives at your point, there's only 1,500 in it, that sort of thing, Um, or construction materials. And you're ordering, you know, you're, you're ordering one third more than you actually need because you know stuff's going to disappear. Um, and somebody's going to get a new office, but, uh, you know, that sort of thing. So it, it was, it, it was that, that experience and then trying to just wrap your head around it. Cause when you leave, you just get on a plane and go, you know, and you come back, there's your demo process. And, you know, a week after you're out of country, you know, or two, you know, a week, week and a half after you're out of country, you're back in Princeton with your kids eating cupcakes and yeah. 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 It's a jarring transition. And I think especially for, um, cause you were reservist, right? Reservist or guard. Uh, 
guard. I'm, I'm AGR active. You're AGR. Okay. Were you AGR then when yes. you went? Okay. Wow. Yeah. Um, cause I feel like for guard and reserve, it's even more jarring because there's not that community necessarily. Now maybe there's AGR, you're at least still in uniform every day, but it, it still seems pretty jarring to go back and suddenly just be spat out into the world with like no safety net and no filter, right. you know, to see that first world again. Um, yeah. yeah. That, and I would say also, I mean, when you're a part of a 12 man team and you come back, it's not like a brigade deployment where you right. come back, everybody's wearing the same patch on their right shoulder and everybody has their same experiences. There's only 12 of you. And, you know, some were traditional guardsmen who went back to their jobs. A couple of us were AGR. We went back to work, but you're working in different places, different locations. So, uh, and I actually, I was a friend of mine who I deployed with, who was on that team. I just saw him uh, two days ago up here. He's, he was up here for the mission we're on now doing a site visit and realizing that of all of us that went, there's only three of us left that are still in. Yeah. Um, and so it, it's definitely a, a unique experience and feeling when you're kind of looking around and you know, you're, you're telling a joke that nobody can relate to. Yeah. Yeah. When was that? What, what year was that deployment? That was 2011, 2012. Got you. Did you have any desire to go back? Yes. Why? Yes wanted to do it better. Um, felt like, you know, everything we did was left unfinished. Um, you, you, you get things started, but then, you know, you, you got to hand them off. So, you know, the desire to go back, the desire to, to see the people that you saw before to see how they're doing. Um, you know, things I still worry about, you know, the, the ANA officers I worked with, what's happened to them. Um, a lot of my Terps are here now. Uh, mm -hmm. thank God for that. They were able to get out. Um, but the desire to do it better to, you know, that feeling that you left, but you could have done more. Was that your only combat deployment or do you have other ones yes. to Iraq as that well? Was that okay. was it. No, 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 never to Iraq. So everything was kind of pent up for a lot yeah. of years, waiting for that moment to go and exercise your yep. soldiership out there. Right. Yep. Yes. That, that I can I, I can see that makes a lot of sense um, as to why that would be so pivotal. Mm -hmm. And um, have you ever thought about writing exclusively about Afghanistan? Uh, even I more have, than just the clearing barrel, but but I mean, actually, really try to go back through month by month how things were and what your experiences I, and takeaways were. I have, but I've also decided against it um, simply because. I don't want to write in such a way that that's the only thing I'm identified with. You know, there's a lot more to my life, to my experiences, things that I've done for a lot longer. Um, you know, the experiences of, you know, of family, the experiences of Catholicism. Mm. Um, so, you know, I, I guess I just, I want to avoid, you know, the pitfall of only having that to write about when there's so much more. What did you say in, in, in your poem uh, where you said, I'm the actor in the movie, everybody knows or something to that yes. point, because you're that, talking about Afghanistan. Now 
this is it. This is what you're going to know. You're trying to know me as right. Yeah, exactly. People always want to know about Afghanistan. I'm the actor in the movie. I'm the actor in the movie. Everyone remembers. Yeah. Yeah. Um, with all that being said, you certainly have been in the military a long time. When did you enlist? September 11th, 1992. <laughs> wow. Boy, talk about a harbinger of things to come. Okay. Exactly. And what was it? What brought you to the military? Um, primarily family history. Um, well, two things. There was family history. Um, my, my mother's side of the family can trace service in various wars back to the French Indian War. Um, so there was that and growing up with those stories, you know, my grandfather having landed on Omaha in the first wave on D-Day, um, and then also the need to get out of Baltimore, um, not long before I made my exit, uh, four friends of mine all overdosed in the same 24 hour period, um, when a bad batch of heroin apparently came into you know, their hands. So, you know, it, the need to, all right, you know, that, that wasn't something I was into, but it was very clear that statistically the odds were against me if I didn't make an exit. So that seemed to be the best path to follow. Why didn't you do drugs? Why didn't you follow down that path? Um, I don't know. Uh, just wasn't my thing. Um, I'm Irish, you know, alcohol worked best. <laughs> I, I, I can't really, uh, I, I can't say what, you know, it, it wasn't Nancy Reagan. She didn't scare me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, the, I, I missed the different strokes episode, you know, with her and, and uh, Gary Coleman, but uh, it, it just wasn't something that, that worked for me. It, it was, uh, something internal it just said you know not not the path you want to be on and maybe externally just seeing what it did to people around me um you know it, you've seen people a, a really talented guitarist that i knew you know he found his way to heroin and seeing him one night just completely strung out in an after hours club that i was in um seeing that you know some of the biggest assholes that i knew people i couldn't stand were either coke heads or coke dealers. Mm. Um, just being around those people is like you know th this isn't who I want to be. So I, I say that's probably it. So because you're not into drugs, was really alcohol the one thing? Was that your vice? Was that your oh. the poison you chose to pick, or was there well, other stuff? Yeah, you know, alcohol, nicotine, caffeine. You know, okay. um, you know, never trust someone with no vices. Right, right, <laughs> right. <laughs> Um, but yeah, and I mean, and again, alcohol, I come from a long and distinguished line of alcoholics. So, you know, I was just carrying on that tradition, but, uh, so what was the shift like then into the military when you joined? Was it, was it easy and seamless or were you like, boy, I'm really cleaning up now. And now I can only drink on the weekend. And, or was there anything like that? No, no, it was, there was the initial, you know, at basic training, uh, you know, am I sure I want to do this? This is, you know, the, the, you know, my life's going to be different. And then, uh, yeah, I was at Bragg talking to a guy who was 
phenomenal guitar player. Um, dude later went on, uh, went through SF selection, became a long tabber. I don't know what he's doing now. Um, but, you know, talking to him and he's just like, dude, you, you, it's possible to maintain interests, maintain passions, hobbies, a life outside of this. Yeah. It seems all consuming mm. at first and it is, you're immersing yourself in the subculture. You're learning the mores of the tribe as it were. Um, but you find, you know, you find that over time it informs the identity that already existed. It doesn't create a new one. Um, which is something that, you know, that I've encountered. A lot of people have this misconception that, you know, we go through, you know, whether it's, you know, army basic and AIT and jump school or whatever you go, you know, you enlist in the Marines and you get on the yellow footprints and then you go through the crucible at Paris Island or the Hollywood Marines out at Pendleton. Um, and that you emerge this different person when you really aren't. I mean, you know, externally you appear to be, you're in hell of a lot better shape. You're running faster. Um, but who you are at the core doesn't change. Um, I never stopped being Anthony. And uh, so mm, I just went way down a rabbit hole and lost my train of thought. No, no, you're good. No, um, I love it. No, because it's a, it's a worthwhile rabbit hole to fall into. Yeah. Um, in fact, I'm going to keep us in there for a minute more. Um, mm -hmm. So when you enlisted, were, uh, how knowledgeable were you about the jobs? How were you? How did you know what you wanted to do? Were you, did you have any kind of clear career path laid out for yourself or was it like, Oh, the army just writ large. That's what I'm buying into. And what? No, no, I definitely made. wanted, wanted to be airborne and wanted to be infantry. Um, that was, you know, just there, there was never a doubt in my mind that that's what I wanted to do. And I did fairly well in the ASVAB and, you know, probably annoyed the recruiter to some extent because he's just like, are you sure that's what you want to do? Yeah, that's what I want to do. Have you thought about MI? And yeah, no, I don't want to do MI. This is what I want to do. Um, and I was a recruiter's dream. Showed up at Met, you know, went to MEPS, tested. Next day, did a physical, and I was in. You know, yeah. called him on, called him. It might have been a Monday, and then Tuesday, Wednesday, and off we went. Um, so you know, I was I was the perfect uh, perfect uh, enlistee. There were no issues, no drama, no waivers that needed to be required. Right. Right. Um, I didn't piss hot, so I didn't have to come back in six months. Uh, <laughs> and had you been writing a lot up until this point before you enlisted? Was that had that become a, a, a solace for you? Was that a coping mechanism for your life at that point? It was. Um, it definitely was. I discovered poetry as a teenager. There was a place in Baltimore called Louis Bookstore Cafe where I. Uh, you know, would spend a lot of time. Um, they had a lot of the city lights pocket poet series there. Mm. Um, they didn't mind if you hung around and were looking at the books, unlike a lot of bookstores in the city where, you know, the, uh, yeah, the, the rent -a cops would look at you kind of askew if you didn't look like mm. you had money to spend. Um, and I just liked the vibe there. It was very artistic, very bohemian. Um, and so that appealed to me. So yeah, reading poetry um, and then you're just going, oh, I can do that. And no, I really I couldn't, but I could at least pretend. Um, well, yeah. Then, why, why did poetry appeal to you? I mean, coming from where you're coming from and doing what you were doing, 
why was that? Why was that what attracted you? Because part of it purely um, superficially, it was short and Uh. I did not have the patience. Like, you know, I said, I'm fairly sure I was undiagnosed, you know, ADD, ADHD. I didn't have the patience to sit down and write a book. Um, Even writing a short story was not something I had the temperament for, but poems. Yeah, I could do that. Um, And that appealed to me and still does the ability to convey, you know, knowing that you're writing a poem and that you have a limited amount of space to say what you want to say. I like that. I like the pressure of that. And it distills things down to their essence. You know, there, there's no, you there's, there's no, um, how do I, how do I want to say it? you can be penalized, you know, if your vocabulary is excessive or too flowery or you go on for too long, you lose your reader. Um, and you lose your own interest in the poem. You, you, you sit there. Are, what am I really writing for at this point? Am I writing to prove that I have an extensive vocabulary? I already know that I do. Um, what do I want to say? And so that's why poetry appeals to me. What do I want to say and how can I say it in the shortest way possible? So when you joined the military, was that why you ended up having that conversation with your friend about being able to still remain the same person? Did you feel like you had to jettison the poetic part of yourself? And yes, like you couldn't I did. Do writing? I, I did. And I did for a while. Um, all those spiral bound notebooks that I filled in high school, I burned every single one of them. They no longer exist. Um, wow. But there was a there was a positive to that in that when I did start to write again, um, and especially after Afghanistan, there's nothing to go back to. Had to start fresh, had to start clean, had to start from who I am now versus the crutch of a you know, um, the crutch of what was. How how long did it take for you to return to writing? on even just a casual basis in the military? Was it really, it took until after Afghanistan or yeah. were you really? So you took yeah. off a long 15 time years. Holy crap. Yeah. Were yeah. you still reading? Were you still reading? Oh, poetry? absolutely. Absolutely. Um, voracious reader, um, poetry, history, biography, um, a lot of, a lot of that, uh, never stopped reading. Um, yeah, that, that even to this day, you know, the, the most, the two most dangerous places at one point for me with money were a bar or a bookstore and I would wow. spend more in the bookstore and, and that still holds true. Um, you know, my TBR list is, uh, the stacks are pretty high. Um, <laughs> so did you, so why didn't you return to writing sooner? Was it because drinking was taking over? Was it because your military career was taking over? What was it that was, I mean, especially since you're still reading and you had um, been writing, what had taken away that muscle? Because that would have required confrontation with emotions, with feelings, and with memories. And I wasn't ready to do that. Not yet. Not then. In retrospect, do you think that was probably the right decision that you shouldn't have, that at that point you needed to be focused on what you were focused on and you really didn't need to be backwards looking? Um, yes and no. Uh, yes, because circumstances at the time demanded it. No, because the longer 
I went without confronting those things, the more damage it did. Um, you know, the, the more, the more it hurt to finally do it. So, you know, and again, you know, hindsight's 2020 because you're looking through your ass, um, inconsequential. It's, it, it was the decisions that I made based on the information I had. I want to shift to your actual military and that's not much a shift, but it would just kind of drill into a little bit more about your actual military career. I mean, you have ended up making it a proper career. Was that always the intent? Did you ever think about getting out? Um, I did. I did, but it, I enjoyed it too much to ever really seriously consider it. And then post nine 11, actually on nine 11, where, you know, I, cause at that point I was still right. I was a regular guardsman at the time, um, and was working for a winery, um, nine 11, you know, by the end of the day, I was back in uniform, you know, cause every, every, you know, this close to New York, every guard unit was mobilized. Um, and it just seemed to fit. It seemed to be natural in a way. It was like, kind of like coming out of hibernation purpose, mm. focus, um, you know, meaning, um, that hadn't been present prior, um, in, in my civilian occupation. So did you, did you kind of, let's call it downshift from active duty to the guard in the nineties? Because it just, uh, what what, what was the reasoning behind it? I won't even try to speculate, but what was your reasoning behind it? Oh, just seemed like the natural thing to do. You do your hitch and then you move on. Because there's no war going on. There's no sense of right. purpose or, or right. yeah. Yep. Just moved on, just stayed in the guard, um, kept that going, enjoyed it, um, was in the bar, bar business, enjoyed that, tried college a couple times, you know, still didn't know what I really wanted to be when I grew up. Um, so just maintained that, um, that approach. And so, then, so 9-11 really kind of gave fuel to yeah. the fire and was like, okay, hey, I need to double yeah. down on this. And did yeah. you go back on active duty or did you stay guard then? Uh, and you were just I mobilized. Went, went EGR. Got mobilized. Oh, went EGR. Okay. And then went EGR. Yeah. Got you. Um, and what was that like for you um, just on a personal level? Did you feel like, yep, I'm ho- this, is act- this is all making sense now. My career yeah. now makes sense. This is my life. I don't need to look for anything else. Exactly. That, and that, that was it. Um, you know, within a few years, uh, actually with, you know, a couple years, E6, a couple years after that, E7. Um, and then, you know, the decision point of OCS and then taking the commission um, in 2008, um, it just all worked. It, it just, the, the stars aligned, whatever phrase you want to use. It just was the right, it was the right path to follow. And how much longer is it going to be the right path? Um, at the most, 18 months. At the most, 18 months. Um, you know, I've got, I've already got 20, more than 20. Yeah. Um, you know, and no matter what, no matter how good you are, no matter how much benefit you add to any organization, everyone reaches a point where your presence in the organization is an obstacle to its evolution. Just simply, you know, it's just the way it works and it's time. Yeah. I, 
I've had a hell of a run. I've had a great career. And uh, it, it's some tremendous opportunities, starting from where I did in a row house in Baltimore to where I am now. You know, it, it's a life that I didn't imagine. And, you know, I, I've given a lot. And it's, it's time to do something different. It's time to focus on being just Anthony. Financially, though, you're going to have a career as a writer, right? I mean, you're, is that going to be your main breadwinner that you're going to put your focus no. into that? No, I'll, I'll start a second career uh, okay. in a different field. Um, you know, not going to you know, give away everything. But yeah, I mean, there, there have been companies that have reached out to me, you know, I, having a skill set, you know, the project management, program management, you know, stuff that's completely boring, <laughs> you know, and especially nowadays, you're, you're not just going to live on a pension. Um, right. you, you really right. can't. So it'll be time to start a second career, but it'll be one that's, there's a little more in the way of, I guess, norm, normalcy. Do you write until you die? Or is that something oh. where it's like, oh, the adventure is kind of getting close to wrapping up? You know, because the adventure only ends when you die. Yeah. Um, there, there's always something to write about. There's always something that you experience that day. There's always a memory that you you maybe hadn't considered from a perspective before. Uh, another person who comes into your life that you meet, an experience someone close to you has. I mean, again, mm. my my own children provide a lot of, um, you know. A, a lot of uh, a lot of the motivation for writing as they move into the world, and they're just at the beginning. So, yeah, I'll, I'll write until I die. I was a writer before I was a soldier, and I'll be a writer after I cease to be one. I got to ask about Varangi. So, yes. what's what's up with the Bengali inf- Indian influence in so much of your work? Where does that come from? Um, actually, Varangi is uh, more a word that is a uh, Turkish Byzantine um, in its oh, roots. Really? Okay. The the Varangians were originally Vikings and then later Saxons following the Battle of Hastings, who made their way to the Byzantine Empire um, as the Vikings learned to navigate the Mediterranean. And the Byzantine Emperor, the Emperor in the East, made them his personal bodyguards. That's why if you go into the Hagia Sophia, you will see graffiti in the runic alphabet in the Futhark. Um, because there were Vikings there. And my own roots um, through the Greek part of my family tied to that. Um, and the Varangians, it comes from the Turkish word Varangi, which means oh, foreigner. Okay. So in, in a lot of ways, yeah, I, I guess I am a foreigner, um, you know, in no matter what world I'm in. So, okay. So when I looked that up, I thought I was being super slick and looking it up and in Hindu, Varangi mm-hmm. means with an elegant body. And I actually thought that was very apropos of your writing. <laughs> and I was like, well, that's an incredibly self-aware way of describing your work. So I was like, oh, okay, well, what's going on with that? And what's the backstory? And I was way, way, way off. Um, so uh, how much, so why did, why did you prioritize that in, let's call it your branding? What, why was that the quality that you wanted to highlight? Um. Because I wanted to highlight both the, the the various aspects that make me who I am. Yeah, there's the military. There's also you know the the ancestry, the ethnicity. Um, 
and the Varangi were travelers. Uh, they were, you know, men and women of, you know, experience who didn't stay, lim- you know, in one place, who traveled and grew as a result and evolved. And that's been my own life. I mean, starting in Baltimore and then, you know, all over, you know, all over the country and my own travels and then all over the world. Um, you know, the army's been great about that, you know, Lithuania, Germany, France, um, Afghanistan, of course, Kazakhstan, um, you know, Italy, Austria, all those places. Um, so it just fit. I want to end, by the way, thanks for those that aren't tracking and hopefully you're nobody listening is tracking this because hopefully Mike Neal, our producer, has done a great job of cleaning up uh, different edits. But Anthony's been talking to us while he's been like on the move, getting chased from every conference room, it seems like <laughs> in the greater Newark area. So um, but so I really appreciate it, man, because it's, it's super cool of you to take the time to do that. And I know you got a lot of balls in the air that you're juggling right now. So to mm-hmm. find a time to shoehorn this in means a lot. But I did want to ask, because mm-hmm. obviously a lot of people listening um, are writers in their own right. Um, how frequently do you write? Do you push yourself to write every day? Yes. Um, not all, that wasn't always the case, but I have found that a daily writing discipline, even if it's a couple of lines, a, a stanza, a phrase to keep, you know, to keep the pen sharp as it were is essential uh, for me. Um, it, it's just, it, it's crucial to, to my own style to, to do, to write something daily. Um, and just to, to maintain that from, from my own evolution. What's the percentage of days that you are driven by inspiration versus just persistence when you do that? That'll go through phases. Um, there are some periods where I will be inspired and just go, um, and I'll push, I'll write, you know, I'll sit down at night. Usually the writing takes place at night after everyone's asleep and work's done for the day and the phone isn't ringing. And, you know, four poems will come out. Others, mm. I got to force myself to do it. And, you know, it, it'll run, you know, usually a couple of weeks and then, you know, a couple of weeks of famine of just, okay, I've got to write something. And then it'll happen again. And, and everybody's got to find their own rhythm in that regard. But you're priming the pump, uh, you know, yeah. when the when that it just all starts to pour, it, right? It, it's like sculpting. Um, you know, everybody admires the sculpture that they see, but don't take into account all of the shapeless bricks or you know fragments that had to be chipped away at to get to that shape. Um, and a lot of writing is, you know, those 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 stones left on the floor. And the poem that you see in front of you is the sculpture, but there's a lot around it that had to be hewn away. When do you know that your poem is done? I just know. Um, you just look at it and it just feels done. Um, that there are some poems that I'm still working on that are, that are you know, on paper or on the notepad app that I'll still go back to and play with or rework that I know aren't there. There are others, you know, you just look at them and you're like, okay, this is what I wanted to say. This is, this is as complete as I can make it. And you just walk away. I don't, I wouldn't say it's ever done. You're just done writing it. <laughs> right. 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 
Do you find that it's helpful to have the notes app always easily accessible? Are you scribbling stuff notes to yourself all the time? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's essential. If you don't write it down, it didn't happen. And there's nothing worse than that idea in the middle of the night or that line you hear in your head. And then the next day you can't remember it. Yeah. Um, yeah the notepad app is crucial. It's like losing the literary hard on, right? If you don't yes, catch exactly. it down, it's like, oh, what was that? Yeah. 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 Listen, uh, Anthony, this has been an absolute pleasure. And um, I really appreciate you taking the time. And I feel very lazy and guilty watching you in an institutional building running around in a uniform while I sit here and contemplate whether or not I'm going to sip my coffee while I talk to you and, and just, you know, twist the knife in even deeper. But listen, I really appreciate you taking the time and thanks for uh, spending it with me. And I'm going to put all the links and everything obviously in the show, but brother, let's stay in touch and um, let's talk again down the road. Absolutely. I look forward to it. And thanks for, and thanks for reaching out to me and asking me to be a part of this. I, I'm honored and I appreciate it. Well, it's been a pleasure, man. All right, brother. Have a good one. That was the savage wonder of Anthony Roberts. And for everyone listening, I hope you paid a lot of attention to the economics of uh, poetry and of writing when he was talking. Uh, his books, again, are Pigtown and The Clearing Barrel. Please go out and check them out. Buy them both. They're great books. Uh, I promise you will not only love reading them the first time, they're books you'll just want to have hanging around because uh, with his gifts for uh, phrasing and his, his poetic uh, uh, turns of phrase, I, I, I think they're books you are going to come back to over and over again. And uh, there's a part of me, I'm not going to lie, that when he said he was going to have to get a second career, uh, it made me sad. And, you know, um, it's a shame that that writing doesn't pay well enough to be a second career, especially for a voice like that. So um, anyway, you guys have now seen how the sausage is made a little bit. And um, it's always good to support uh, talented writers. So as with all of our guests, go out and check out his work, uh, Pigtown and the Clearing Barrel. You've been listening to Savage Wonder, which is the podcast for warriors and artists and a production of the Veterans Repertory Theater. The opinions expressed, I always say this, do not represent anything or anyone other than the speaker. I don't think anybody said anything remotely controversial, um, but Anthony is still in uniform. So if you were deeply offended by any of his thoughts on poetry or form or the way form and function marry in poetry, uh, that's his opinion. <laughs> that's, not, that's not anybody else's. Uh, as always, you can check out what's going on with us at vetrep.org. That is the best place to see all the burgeoning lines of effort that we are coming up with on a seems like almost weekly basis. So if you like the written word, if you love reading fiction, poetry, creative nonfiction, subscribe to the Savage Wonder Literary Blog. The best way to do that is to go to vetrep.org, go to our Now Playing tab, and you will see the option to click on the literary blog and subscribe at will. You can also subscribe to this podcast um, by doing the exact same thing. Go to vetrep.org, go to the Now Playing tab, and you will see the option to get onto this podcast, subscribe to it, listen to it, whatever. If you're listening to us on iTunes, please, we would love your feedback. Uh, you can say whatever you want. To me, you can give feedback, you can have questions, comments, snide remarks, uh, criticism, both constructive and deconstructive, doesn't really matter. But if you could attach it to a five-star review, that would be outstanding. Just click five stars and then feel free to let fly and say whatever you'd like to say. 
that would be outstanding. That, of course, is not the only place you can give us feedback. You can also hit me up on Twitter at VetRepTheater, V-E-T-R-E-P Theater, E-R, not R-E. Um, same address, same handle uh, for Instagram, at VetRepTheater. Or if you're on Facebook, at Veterans Repertory Theater. And again, no one knows how to spell repertory, so I'll spell it for you here. It's R-E-P-E-R-T-O-R-Y. And again, theater is E-R, not R-E. So at Veterans Repertory Theater on Facebook. If you want to submit your work to VetRep or to our literary blog, go to VetRep.org again. Go to the Submissions tab, and you will see all the options to submit for one of our ongoing playwriting competitions or for the Savage Wonder Literary Blog. As always, thanks to our producer, Mike Neal. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer on behalf of the Veterans Repertory Theater. See you next time when we'll dive further into the savage wonder of it all.